All right. So did you, did you guys, uh, were you able to read that document I sent about the Dow? Yes. Yeah, the, the eight laws. I went and... I don't have a printer. I went to the library and printed it. You went to the library and printed it. Wow, I'm sorry. I could have done that for you. We have like a printer out here. Wow. All right, so there was a bunch of quotes that C.S. Lewis gathered to prove his point uh, about the Tao. So he wanted to show that there are these universal moral laws, um, and so he categorized them into eight sections. Um, did any of the sections surprise those of you who read it? Those of you who read it? Okay, so you wish you had a. You, the, you would, what were the eight sections? No, I don't. don't Can you just list them, say them quickly? Well, if yeah. I had a copy. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody have it's in, it? It's in the back of Abolition of Man. Anybody have a copy of Abolition of Man? Uh, not with me. Oh my gosh, you guys. <laughs> What about the, the teacher? Does he have it? No. The teacher is not no, prepared. My students would have it. I've never known a good teacher to come and prepare. <laughs> Nobody said anything about being good. No, okay. oh, I guess not. Okay, here we go. Got general. General benevolence. This pen does not. Okay, general benevolence. I guess we need to bring you special benevolence. Hmm. Special benevolence. Duties to parents, elders, and ancestors. Duties to parents, elders, and ancestors. Okay, honor your mother and father, so it goes well with you in the land. Nice. Duties to children and posterity. Okay, duties to children and posterity. The law of justice. The law of justice. Good. Good. The law of good faith and veracity. Good faith and veracity, nice. <clears throat> the law of mercy. The law of mercy. The law of magnanimity. 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 Is that all of them? Is that eight? That's it. Mm -hmm. it no. Seems like an interesting list, doesn't it? Yeah. For him, I think for his time period, that doesn't surprise me. It's not the eight I would say. Yeah. Well, special uh, special you, benevolence. What? I don't know the difference between regular benevolence. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's what I thought. I was like, why is there like benevolence? Seems like benevolence. Yeah, yeah. So, in, what what does the list reveal about what's important to C.S. Lewis? What is, what does the list reveal about? Um, notice it doesn't it doesn't have a category about self governance. Notice there's not a category about property law. Um, <laughs> when I took an uh, intro to philosophy class in junior college in the early 2000s, prop like whether there are such a thing as property rights was a big deal. And I didn't realize until later it's because they were all a bunch of rabid commies. They're trying to undermine the very idea. But in, in, in philosophical conversations now, you talk a lot about property rights. It's interesting he doesn't have a list of property rights. He starts with benevolence. Because he also believed that we in the Christian church had confused ethics with a, um, it, we focus more on what we deny ourselves than what we positively do for others. So I think the fact that it starts with benevolence is very, very C.S. Lewis. But is there anything that you think you would add to the list that's not there? Ethical. Ethical. See, it's really interesting because it reveals uh, the times. I would have it, right? How could we not have something on there about human sexuality and, gen and gender? identity, but it's, like, right. but it's so specific to our time. 
And I found this is true with the, you know, the Westminster Confession. There's 33 chapters, there's 33 doctrines, and it's not the same 33 doctrines that I would choose because history, right, what we're dealing with now is completely different. They say nothing about creationism there. Um, yeah, so I think some of Lewis's presuppositions are demonstrated in the list, but I mean, did you guys see how the, the breadth and length of, of his reading? I mean, he had things from like ancient Egyptian law codes and uh, he, he had to go and hunt those down. It's not like now where you... I, don't, I was not surprised because I know he's was extreme. yeah, extremely well read. Extremely well read could mem and memorize what he did read. Um, but that must have taken him quite some time to organize all of those things. Because, mm -hmm. um, you know, I know that when he was writing his own help book, he went to <clears throat> Modern Library and read everything in, in the 16th century literature section. Everything. Wow. Um, in order to in order to write the book, so I'm sure as he was going along, he just categorizes things in his mind because he can he could remember everything that he read. It's shocking. Well, it's quite a list, I, and I agree that there is such a list, and I think that um, it's a tool that you can always refer to. Right? Anybody says that there's not a universal moral code, you go in there from Christians to pagans, from modern to ancient, you have agreement on these things. Mm -hmm. So, going from that to deeper magic, okay, what we read about this week is harmarchaeology. Now, what is harmarchaeology? The study of, uh, study of sin. The study of sin. Harmarchaeology. Look at that, I spelled it right, didn't I? Whoa. Whoa. Hmm. That's an R. Yeah. <laughs> it's more like the glare. Oh, the, the glare. Sure, sure. Well, there's another R, actually. Shh. <laughs> Close enough. Okay, so harmarchaeology. Now, harmarchaeology is important because um, it, the study of sin. In our, in our modern times, people do not like talking about sin. Christians do not like talking about sin. Um, in fact, it's really, you know, even my modern Logos program, I have 10,000 plus books in this program. It's the Reformed Gold. And you go and you look up harm archaeology and there's like nothing. Um, uh, but if you go and you, and you cross-reference the Puritans, I have this book of that's all the Puritan theology together. And you're like, oh, lo and behold, it's like the harm archaeology section. It's like 500 pages. <laughs> they liked talking about the study of sin. And usually what this, um, you know... Uh, Usually what this the study involves is just it's literally vocabulary. Almost always when you when you get a book about harm archaeology, it's vocabulary. So they take a Greek word like malakoi, which is a sin listed in second first uh, Corinthians. And which then they archaeology? softness. This is the sin of male softness. Um Voluptuousness. I mean, the, the idea is. Where is that? Where yeah. is that? First Corinthians six nine through eleven. Okay, There's you. a word that says homosexual. Oh. Okay. But what it is, they took two Greek words and packed them into one. So when they translate it, they don't say malakoi and homosexual. They say homosexuals. But malakoi is different than homosexual. First Corinthians chapter six. Verse, I think, 9 or 10. Okay, thank you. So usually when you study harmarchaeology, it's literally just vocabulary. They have a word like this, and they explain how it was used in Greek. They explain its various definitions, how it's used in the New Testament, and, and that's it. This is a sin. 
Um, and it's very important to have uh, hard mark theology because confession, when you confess your sins, as we've said here many times, you're saying the same thing. That's what it means to confess. I call my sin what God calls it. Um, I, got, I get caught with this all the time. My kids now are very aware. I say, son, I apologize for being a jerk. I'm sorry that I was a jerk. And my son's like, you know, they love it when you... When, sometimes their flesh loves it a little too much when I'm... I don't know. They're like, where in the Bible does it say not to be a jerk, Daddy? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was going to ask. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't anywhere. But why do we do that? Why would we confess our sins do we say things like that? I'm sorry for being a jerk. Or, that I'm, sounds better maybe than what the real sin is? It sounds better yeah. than the real sin, right? I'm defining what I did. I'm not letting God define what I did. Yeah. Um, what, what was it? I'm sorry that you were offended by what I said. I did that one. I tried that one oh, this week too. On my, sorry, my wife, my wife was like, "Hold on there, <laughs> don't go too fast." Okay. <laughs> how about you? I was like, "Fine." I apologize for being a jerk. No. So, so it's very important to have a vocabulary of sin because when we're confessing and repenting, you actually want to confess and repent of the things that God actually doesn't like. Um. And the, and the other thing about harmartiology is understanding sins. If you, because one of the weaknesses of modern Christianity is the niceness problem. Yeah. And we confess when oftentimes when we ought not to, and not when we should. Okay. Any person who comes to you and has taken offense is not an opportunity for you to apologize. You, I mean, you have to actually. Okay, what did I actually do? Um, and what? And, and I have uh, been a proponent of this kind of nonsense. It doesn't matter if you really did it or not, or whether you think you did it. The, the Christian thing to do is to apologize. I've said that for years. Well, I repent of ever telling people that. Because if you're not convinced in your own mind that you actually committed the sin, okay, you're lying to the person. So and now what you're doing is you already sinned, now you're lying. Now the key here is that if, if, if someone comes to you and they say, you know, I think you did X, I think you were a Malakoy, <laughs> and, and you say, no, I don't think I was. Okay, so they go away and they come back with a witness, right? They follow Matthew 18. Now, are you, are you going to think about it more deeply if the person returned with a witness? Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> because what I find is <clears throat> people are very offended. If you Because this has happened to me, and these kind of men, I don't even know what to make of them sometimes. I'm like, listen, you, you were very unloving. They're like, no, I'm not going to apologize for that. I wasn't. I don't even know how to handle it. I get all malady on So, you know, and then they're like, yeah, you know, you go and you pray. And if I really did, you come back with a witness and we'll talk. And you know what I almost never do? Go back with a witness. Um, archaeology is very important. We have to understand what it is that we're calling people to repent of and confess. We ourselves have to understand what it is that we're confessing and repenting of. Okay? And so there are a host of sins outlined in the New Testament. Like this one is one most people don't even know exists because of the... And so when you do something like harmontiology, they go and grab all of these out of the plate, out of the, their location in the New Testament and just list them out and explain them. It's very, very helpful. Okay, so as far as the chapter is concerned, uh, what is it? What, what is the grand meta-narrative of Christianity? The grand meta-narrative of Christianity. It's in the first, like, page or two of the chapter. You guys remember? He mentions a meta-narrative. Uh -huh. The meta-narrative. Did everyone read this? 
I haven't I haven't read all of it. Some of you read it? from fall to sin. You went from fall to sin? Yeah. So the story of what? You guys remember? The story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Okay? This is the meta narrative. Man, that is going to take some getting used to. So loud! Okay, creation, fall, redemption, what is it? Restoration. Restoration. Uh, this one I'm kind of curious as to why it says restoration. I know it sounds good with the R's, but I would say glorification. Where's glorification? Um, especially if we're talking about C.S. Lewis. What C.S. Lewis was very much into this idea that every day you're deciding what you're becoming. Okay, It's not that at the end God makes a choice about you. You've already decided heaven or hell long before you get to the day of, the, of judgment. And you're either becoming something that if we saw you now, we would worship you, or if we saw you now, what you're going to become, we would be horrified. Right? We're all becoming angels or devils. Restoration? Redemption. Uh, redemption. Yeah, redemption, salvation. Okay, but we have to talk about not just restoration because I, I think I think this is um, part of the pessimistic uh, eschatology people have. They use words like this. We're not just being restored. We don't just go back to Eden uh, and eat apples for the eternity. We're like glorified beyond the point. Right? We're not just simply taken back to a place where we had begun. We're taken beyond that. Um, and the deification of man is a very important doctrine that was very very important to Lewis, and I think that you have to include that here. So restoration just seems weak to me, weak sauce. Um, uh, the deification of man, of course, not the Eastern Orthodox version of it, which I hardly understand, um, but the actual biblical version of it, which is we are, we are going to be sharing in the nature of God. So we don't suddenly have an eternity past, right? We don't become gods in the same way God is. But if we are eternal beings that never get sick and can't die, who <laughs> live forever, uh, that is, I would call that a god, right, as far as we understand it. Um, and so this, you know, Peter says we will share in the nature of God, which you have to think about, what does that mean, right? So the deification of man is very important to Lewis. And I think when you're talking about the meta narrative, it's very important. But if you, right, this is a story that we're telling. We were created we fell, we have been redeemed, we will be glorified and restored and glorified. Now, how is this different than the modern paradigm? Right? How can you use this when, uh, when you're combating the modern paradigm? Remember the modern paradigm from the first semester? What is the modern paradigm? <laughs> Where we created? Start by yes. saying we evolved. Yeah, we start, we evolved, right? Creation is start story is that by time and chance. Right. Okay, um, the, and was man originally good or bad? Good. Good. Okay, man is inherently good, and redemption and restoration is very confusing to progressives because I always right we talked about this before. Progressing towards what? What are they progressing towards? What's the destination? Whereas the meta narrative of the Bible, right? If you're created, then the being that created you has purpose and power. Okay, if you fell, you fell from a standard. There, there's something that was broken. Okay, there, therefore. You know, the destination is redemption and restoration and glorification. 
So in this story, we know where we came from, we know why we're here, and we know where we're going. The, the, the secular paradigm, if you start to ask this question, they don't know. They don't know where matter came from. They don't, right? Uh, well, they're Chris, not Christopher Hitchens, the other guy. The, the, one of the, yeah, Dawkins, right? They really were pressing him <laughs> for an explanation about where the matter came from. And he started talking about crystals, and he started talking about aliens, and, and he was just like, he, he got away, they got him, moved him away from his normal subject, and he sounded like a nut. <laughs> and I was like, this is literally the smartest guy he has. And he explains a lot of things, and, and it's really hard to um, unpack some of his argumentation. But as soon as you get him on creation, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, and it's very important for us to know in our minds this meta story that we're telling. Okay? And, and every week in our liturgy, um, right, we, 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 we work through elements of this story every week. So it's supposed to be very inherent in everything that we do. Um, okay, who's the second most important character in the Bible? After God, of course. God is the most important character. Who's the second most important character? Maybe Moses, since he talked and walked with God personally. No, see, it says right in our textbook... Who's the most second most important? Not a particular person. Oh, okay. Not a particular man, but man. Oh. Now, why is man the second most important character? Man. Man is the second most important character. Um, because man in the created universe is the most important thing that God created. Um, and, th and this anthropology, I think, is very important. Man is not an accident. Uh, man is, is the point. Um, this is why I'm a heliocentric person. I, the Earth is the center of the universe. I understand how it may appear. But as far as the meta narrative of God, as far as God is concerned, the center of the universe is Earth. Um, because that is where yeah, the whole story is taken. And you call it heliocentric? Because it's helios, sun. Oh, sorry. What's the other word? Heliocentric. Geocentric. Oh, see, I'm okay. so glad you're here, Laura. Someone's got to keep me honest. Geocentric. I was confused. I know. Well, I'm here to just really unsettle you. So, geocentric. I am, in fact, geocentric. And I understand how it looks. I understand how it looks. I'm talking about theology, not science. Okay? The, the fact that science says that, this, you know, that the Earth is not the center of the universe means there's a problem with science, frankly. <laughs> So man is the most important thing. Now, there's a couple of interesting things about this. Um, in the Bible, the, the, the hero is not man. The hero is God. And there is no other religious work in which um, God is the hero and man is not, right? If you go and you read Greek mythology, man is the hero. You go and you read Norse mythology, man is the hero. You read uh, several Eastern uh, religion, religious books, man is always the hero. Man is the thing, okay? Now, man is the thing, but man is not the hero. He's the one who needs saving, okay? And the story of saving us is the story of, of the cosmos. It's what the whole thing is about. So we have to understand, you know, the doctrine of man then becomes very important. So should we get rid of man so that Earth can just have its way? Right? I mean, this whole modern idea of... That is a modern idea. Yeah, the man is the problem that we have to get rid of. And you're like, no, 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 no. Man is the point. Right? There's oil in the ground because God wanted us to burn it in cars. 
I'm not just going to say it. He, he filled the earth with things that we can use. Now, if you want to talk about how we're using those things, fine. But you, you get to this nihilistic worldview very quickly where the problem is man and you have to get rid of him. Um, and, and that is diametrically opposed to the worldview. Okay? Uh, okay, now what we're going to talk about is... Uh, yeah, what does it mean? Okay, yeah, God's image. My favorite female theologian, Dorothy Sayers, is who we're going to talk to for a moment. Do you guys have a Bible? Get out your Bibles. Dorothy Sayers is the one who explains this better than even C.S. Lewis. Okay, do you guys know who Dorothy Sayers is? She was a contemporary of Lewis, a friend of his. She famously, she was the one who had the potato argument about Narnia. She said, Lewis, listen, your story's awful. Okay, if it's been winter all this time, where do the beavers get the potatoes? And he was like, you clearly didn't read it close enough. <laughs> she also famously said in, in regards to uh, mere Christianity that poor Lewis says terrible things about women because he doesn't know anything about women. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, Dorothy, get him. Okay, so Dorothy Sayers says, okay, let's talk about what the image of God is. What, why are we going in the Bible? Yeah. Oh, Genesis 1. Oh. Right at the start. Right. I know that's not how your app works, but if you open your Bible to the first page. <laughs> okay, now, this is, um, in, in chapter 2, okay, when he says, let's make man in our image, what is that? what does that mean, to be made in the image of God? What does it mean? Now, okay. What is the image of God we're given? In, in the first chapter of Genesis, does it tell us what God looks like? No. no what does it describe? He's powerful. Okay, he's powerful, his character. He's thinking. He's thinking, okay. He's creative. He's creating, okay. So God is, in the very beginning, God is making. And then what does he think about what he made? That's good. That's good. That's good. Okay, so God is adoring. He's appreciating. Yes, um, he makes value. value. He has yes. He he cares about things. He can tell what's beautiful and what's not, and he makes what he likes. Okay, he doesn't make what he doesn't like. So he makes things and he's able to judge them. Okay. Now this is very. This is what C.S. Lewis means when he describes it. He talks about this mind, right? That's his argument so far in Christianity. Yeah. And I, for me, it's very confusing. But uh, he hasn't yet come to theology, so I forgive him. I think Dorothy Sayers, she wrote a book called The Mind of the Maker, uh, and it's pretty much her theological, her most important theological work. Um, and she talks about this and explains it perfectly. In the first chapter, you see God making things and adoring things. He's clearly a mind, like Lewis says. Okay, He clearly values things. He has purpose. And, and this, is, this is what it means to be made in the image of God. Okay, Because in, in, the, in the beginning, in Genesis 1, does he make Chevy pickup trucks? Nope. Okay, does he make everything we need to make a ship to a truck? Nope, obviously. Yes, he leaves yes. it there. Yeah. Okay? Um, I, I've, I've recently gotten into... Um, it's funny, I'm maturing very slowly, but I'm buying very nice soap now. This is like my thing. And it's called pine tar. This is the smell. And I was like, this is awesome. And it literally on the back says that it's made out of pines. Like, sap is yeah. an ingredient. And, if, and I was like, man, I already like pine trees because they look cool. I like pine trees because they make air. But now we can suck the blood out of there and I can rub it all over my face. <laughs> <laughs> smell like a man. Okay. And you're like, this is what God did to creation. 
okay? He just leaves this stuff. Yeah. Um, and this is a game my kids and I love to play. Who is the first person who thought, let's go and, 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 and squeeze that cow and get some milk out of it? <laughs> or cooking an egg? Who was the first one to roll the dice on that? Right. Right? Because I would have waited, I would have gotten the one that had blood all over the inside and said, okay, well, we're never trying that again. <laughs> okay? God made a world full of stuff that we can use to make stuff out of. Everything we make is made out of things that he made. Mm-hmm. Okay, he, doesn't want to, he didn't want to create a finished world. He created a good one, a very good one. Because he wants us to, to, to be his image bearers and make things. That's the whole purpose of man. We make stories, we make pine tar soap. Okay? So God is adoring. Now this is, this is also important because we tend to think of man as homo sapiens, thinking man. But we're not. We're homo adorans. Okay? We're homo adorans. We, we, we adore. Uh, that is what we're made to do. We are supposed to look and, and make value judgments, have aesthetic opinions, and say this is good and this is bad. This is beautiful. This is ugly. The, um, okay? So the other thing that you see God do, but it's, it, 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 it's a delayed reaction. He tells Adam, what does he tell Adam is going to happen if he eats the apple? He will surely die. He will surely die. Okay? Um, and then does Adam actually die? Eventually. Yeah. Yes. Okay? But not right away. <clears throat> not physically. So you see God the destroyer. He doesn't just make. He also destroys. But what does he destroy? He destroys those things that dishonor him. Those things that are contrary to his nature. Those things that mar his image. And, and you see this, actually, in the very beginning when he says, he takes Adam and he puts him in the garden and he says, guard and keep it. Okay, well, if, if he, God, listen, I've been reading. It says, you said it's very good. If creation is very good, what does Adam have to guard the garden from? Unless you inherently put into this story something on purpose that he's going to have to guard the garden from. Okay? Yeah. Okay, and this is um, <laughs> C.S. Lewis's best description of the fall is in his book Paralandra. You guys read Paralandra? Okay, he, yeah, he, he's redeemed. His name's Ransom. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. He goes to this planet that is, uh, has just been created, and Adam and Eve, or Adam and Eve of that planet, are right there. And, it, and another guy named Winston comes, and he's possessed by a demon. I'm not going to say which one, because I want you to read the book. Okay? And now the demon-possessed man is trying to convince Eve to fall. Okay? She's told not to sleep overnight on this island. And Winston spends the whole book trying to convince her to do it. It's very long, very... It's like sermons written by Winston and Ransom trying, trying to argue with the girl about whether she should sleep on the island. The king, nobody knows what happened to him. He was carried off by a wave. Okay, so finally Ransom realizes something. Nothing, I'm not going to be able to out-argue this demon because he's smarter than me, he's wiser than me, and too much is at stake. What I have to do is punch him to death. <laughs> he's, and, and like he's somewhat horrified, this, this philosopher, this philologist is horrified that when it really comes down to it, it's not an argument, it's a fight. Now, what C.S. Lewis is saying about the Christian religion as a dawn of all things, right? He's an Oxford dawn, for goodness sakes. And he's saying the Christian life has, has um, there's a moment where argumentation stops. And then what you have to do is destroy. Okay? And God the destroyer is very important. Man is supposed to destroy things. 
Right? This is what Jesus says. If your arm causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do with it? Chop it, chop, chop it off. And we want to make the whole Christian religion about intellect and argumentation. And, and what we fail to understand is that sometimes what it really comes down to is a fight, even with your own self. Okay? Physical fight. Um, and actually, when I was teaching this on Friday, Eric was in the back, and he said there's a tumor that you could get, and, and it has harmar, it's like harmarty, um, I forget the word, okay? And it's this tumor that grows on, on human beings, and it, it, it's the tissue that it grows is separate from the tissue of what it's growing on. So you can have it in your stomach, and it'll grow teeth. You have it grow on your bones, and it grows in here. He says it is the most gross and weird thing he's ever seen. Hmm. And the only thing you can do is go out and choppy chop chop it out. And and this I, I think, you know, back then they used to name things better than they do now. So somebody was like, you know what this is like? Yeah. <laughs> sin. This is like the sin. Just cut it out. Just cut it, cut it out. You gotta be uh, God the destroyer. Okay? So God is a maker, God is an adorer, but God is a destroyer as well. And so man is supposed to make and man is supposed to adore and man is supposed to destroy. And I think that this is something that we really need to spend time thinking about. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the apologist, thinks there is a moment where what you have to do is punch the sin to death. <laughs> All arguments come to uh, have to stop at some point, and it has to come to fisticuffs. Okay. Uh, now, the other thing I want to talk about that he that he discussed was, oh yeah, the difference between utter and total depravity. C.S. Lewis, the, the Calvinist here. So C.S. Lewis wasn't, I mean, he was an Anglican, and Anglicanism is, at, you know, one of its roots is Calvinism. But he wasn't necessarily an avowed Calvinist. But he read 16th century literature. And 16th century literature in England involves a great deal of Calvinism. Okay? So he likes Richard Hooker. He likes James Usher. Uh, he was very influenced by these guys. So he has very, very hardcore reform views occasionally. Um, but if you asked him, are you a reformed person? He was like, no, I'm a mere Christian. But when you, when, what we're about to talk about is not mere Christianity, in my opinion. What we're talking about is very Calvinistic. But he talks about the difference between utter and total depravity. Oh, would a true Calvinist say it is mere Christianity? <laughs> <laughs> Only amongst ourselves. Uh, <laughs> I just teach what the Bible teaches. Yeah. Right? I had a, yeah, yeah. You're teaching Calvinism. I'm teaching the Bible. Okay. So, utter and total. What's the difference linguistically between these two words? Utter and total. Is there Well, see, and this is what's funny. Theologically, there's a difference. I think there's a difference. Yeah. What is the difference, Laura, English teacher? Well, total is, means complete. Okay. Um, utter would be... Pretty bad. Yeah, yeah it's like it's really, <laughs> really depraved. Yeah, it's a different. Yeah, it's a degree. It's a, degree. it's a matter of degrees. Total is just a complete. Yeah, hundred percent. So, and this is what I think. Cal this is where Calvinists, specifically Reformed people, get into themselves into a lot of trouble. Because I know <clears throat> non-believers who are way nicer and way more consistent and less depraved than Christians. I know. Mm -hmm. um, and I, but that does not mean I'm going to see the unbeliever in heaven and the Christian not in heaven. Okay. The the, the argument that um, that unbelievers and sinners are as utterly depraved as possible all the time just doesn't work. It doesn't work. We know it's not true. Okay. Every unbeliever is not just like out there 
absolutely doing whatever they want. They have an ethical code. They have they follow laws. They follow rules. We are totally depraved. Okay, everything that everything that we do is tainted by it. We're, it's like we are totally down to our core bad. That does not mean that every single thing that we do is always as bad as it can be. Okay. Now there's there's a couple of things you say about this. You guys know John Piper. Okay, John Piper. <laughs> every week he writes a sermon. Back when he was preaching regularly. He gets his sermon out on Saturday night. He lays it out in front of him on the chair. He gets down on his knees and he repents of it. He repents of having written it. Because how dare he attempt to, 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 to think he understands the word of God and God himself. Okay? And he would repent of it. And then he would go and preach it. <laughs> and this is like a crazy idea. This is, John, this is why John Piper's been so effective all these years, I think. Okay? Because there is, in some sense, in even the best things that we do, some taint. But I think that we misunderstand what, what this means. Okay, because uh, people even nowadays like to say you're to repent of your good works. And, and they, they quote a verse from Isaiah, I think it is, that they don't understand. We're not supposed to repent of our good works. You're supposed to do good works. Okay? Don't, don't repent of those. But repent of the fact that always, always, always be aware that in everything you do, there is some taint. There's some selfishness. And, and what I think you're understanding is that you're totally depraved. Not utterly depraved. Okay? So not only when we're dealing with ourselves, we have to think about this. We think too highly of ourselves. We're like, no, you are totally depraved. Okay? But then when we go into the world, we're like, yeah, look at all these utterly depraved people. <laughs> and, and then, but people don't want to listen to us when you make that argument because it's, it, it's prima facie and not true. You can see it's not true. The proof is in the pudding. People are not utterly depraved. Is this, is this making sense? Is this utterly supposed to be worse? Yeah, it's like you you are as wicked as all get out, no stopping you all the time, nothing but wickedness. Yeah. Right? And uh, does like anyone... choosing and actively pursuing per, In everything that you do. Yeah. Now, does anyone even know of an utterly depraved person? Okay, and I mean, this is this and this is true. And he, you visit prisons lately. So. <laughs> That's where they... That's keep. where you might find them. That's where you would find them, of course, right? Not yeah. in the church here. <laughs> uh, but you guys are all totally different. Totally. <laughs> nice. Well, I like you. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, that so, yeah, quick response. Because you know, it's true. Like, I mean, um, I, was, I was listening to uh, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, which is. If you ever want to know about the, the, the Third Reich, there's this one book. It's like, you read that, yeah. you're good. Okay, you know everything you need to know. But I was fascinated by the people who liked Hitler personally. I was like, really? And, and it's like, even someone like him can actually have, there are people who have affections for him, who he wins over personally. Mm -hmm. and, if, and if there are going to be people who like him, right? But, but what's funny is in my mind, he seemed, right, like most people, he's like the worst human being who ever lived. But, but he, ha he had people who actually cared about him and liked him. Um, Judas walked around with nobody, right? At the, at the dinner table there, Jesus says one of them is a betrayer. Everyone's asking if it's them. Nobody was like, oh, it's Judas. <laughs> right? And think, Judas went out and did things in God's name. He, 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 he healed people. He cast out demons. He's there with them all the time. And nobody realizes it's him. So what does that tell you? about the, the difference between the inner man and the outer man. The difference between the totally depraved and the utterly depraved. Even Judas was a good guy. 
Uh, even Judas was somebody that, that everyone thought of, thought well of. Um, and I think that you have to be really, really careful when, you, when you're dealing with these categories, okay? Because we tend to think that the people, right, when we don't like people or we think they're wicked, like Joe Biden, right? People say terrible things about Joe Biden. Now, there are true thing, truly terrible things to say about Joe Biden, okay? <laughs> but it's just funny to me how we, we, we cast these characters in our minds as the utterly worst human being ever. Like, when I see him, I just have nothing but pity for him. I just, I, I like literally, dude, someone just give the guy some ice cream and sit him down by a chair where there's a window, okay? <laughs> like, he just doesn't, he doesn't, it, he just seems like he's being handled, okay? And, and uh, the same thing with the governor, I mean, Inslee. Sometimes when I see him, especially when he's with his wife and they're sitting in their house, I'm like, he's just like an old man. Like, he, he's just a sweet old man, almost. Like, he has like a power trip, don't get me wrong. And he's telling everybody what to do. But, and, and you get him in these certain contexts, like away from the power suit and the power you know, display on the TV. He's just this old man who thinks he's doing what's best for everyone. Um, and and we, we tend to go here with the people we don't like. Yeah. Right, but look at David's response to Saul. Right? Did he think Saul was absolutely the most utterly worst thing that ever lived? No. No, because how could he ever say anything good about it? Ever. Um, and we have to make this distinction, right? In studying harmartiology, not only are we, are we given a vocabulary for sins, okay, but we get an understanding um, of, of its effect on people. Everybody is tainted by it. Everybody is affected by it. But thank God people aren't as bad, as, they, as utterly bad as they could possibly be. Another application of this is the fact that people talk about modern pagans. And I will take modern pagans over ancient pagans any day of the week. Okay? Um, if, if, as we're reading this story about Saul, what did they do to Saul's body? Okay? Now, there are some people in the world who will do those things. My brother was in Afghanistan. He saw things like that. But that's not generally how most people are, right? That's not the pagans who live in Seattle. Okay, Western civilization has had a greater effect on, on humanity than we realize. Mm -hmm. And I would, I, I, I would rather take a pagan from Tacoma than a pagan from Gaul okay, in the 3rd century. I, I would not want to face those pagans. I would run away screaming. And, and, to, and to equate modern pagans with ancient pagans is, I think, another thing that Christians do all the time that is just foolish. Um, because you can see that people are civilized. Go out and watch it. Watch how they drive. Watch how they shop, right? Look how people aren't just... And, and now what we have are things... Um, we're starting to see the, dinner, um, the disintegration of, of society. So down in California, you know, um, these young people just like go raging into a mall and grab everything they can and flee, okay? Um, and people are like, oh, look at this madness. And you're like, yeah, okay. One, one time, though, you saw this video where a guy takes a gun out and shoots it in the air. You know what everyone does? Drops their stuff and runs. Because these aren't raving wolves like you would have had in Gaul in the third century, frankly. Okay, it's not the pigs living in the Scottish hills. I mean, pagans now are completely different. And I think it's the same, we, we, we run into the same problem. We equate things that, aren't, that don't actually equate. And, and I think that when we talk about sin, and we talk about depra depravity and culture and paganism, I think we sound dumb. I mean, we just sound very ignorant, frankly. Um, and this is the thing that I, I, I think we need to be, instead of carpet bombing, we need to be precision bombers. Okay, if we understand sins and what they are, we can say, oh, that person is committing this one. Opposed to, that person is a jerk. Because <laughs> right? being a jerk is never, not something God told us not to do. 
Does this make sense, what I'm saying? So not only when we're judging ourselves, but when we're, we're trying to engage in the culture, I think we have to be more sophisticated about these things, while at the same time realizing that at one point the arguments end and it comes to fisticuffs. It does. It's go- it has to. Uh, they don't burn us at the stake and feed us the lions. I mean, they do that because it eventually comes to fisticuffs. Okay? Okay. Uh, that's it for this week. Hey, will you pray for us? Lord God, thank you for this class. Thank you for this discussion, for your word, and for um, uh, uh, giving us C.S. Lewis to help guide us in these these things. And um, pray we would continue to uh, study before pray for our week. Uh, pray for service today and Mike's sermon. Pray to be glorified in all of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thanks, guys.